Um, so today I'm having a gas with Laura Jordan Bamback, the Chief Creative Officer and President here at Grey London. Uh, one of the world's few female Chief Creative Officers, is former President of DNAD, and has recently been named one of Britain's most influential people within the, how do I say that, Debrett? Debrett's? Debrett's. Debrett's 500 annual list for the second year running, scooped up individual of the year at the, uh, is that the Daddy Awards? Or the Daddy Awards. Oh, the Daddy Awards. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and has been awarded an honorary doctorate for her services to graphic design from the University of the Arts, London. So it's uh, maybe one of the more uh, nerve-wracking interviews that we've had to do for uh, just facing off against, you know, presence and um, experience. But thanks for having us, it's Laura. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So it's really quiet out there. And we're used to that because it's been COVID-y. But of course, that's not the reason today. No, absolutely not. We've got a train strike, so we've asked everyone to stay home if if they uh, can. You're being a good leader and not demanding they hike into the absolutely, office. Absolutely, absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. So um, I guess um, hitting the ground running, we know yeah. where you are now. We've we've discussed that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the words of David Byrne, how did you get here? You know, uh, because it's been a long journey and, yeah. you know, you're right at the top. So for all people who want to be right at the top, how did you do it? <laughs> Um, it has been a, a long journey, and I think the key has been that I never thought I, I never planned to be doing what I'm doing today. I never had this big end goal. I would be a chief creative officer. I, I wanted to run an agency. Didn't even really know very much about what agencies were when I started out. But I had a couple of things that have really driven me, and that's been my focus. So one has been the power of creativity to create change in the world mm-hmm. and 100% you know I've always believed in that um, and then the second thing has been I guess um, uh, I call it being comfortable being uncomfortable but like leaning into those places that I find maybe a little bit uncomfortable yep. or that might challenge me a little bit uh, as a way to grow and I think those two things have been really fundamental I guess to my success um, so I started out um uh, I went to art school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, partly I went to art school because I was passionate about art. Partly I went because um, I was also a bit of a nerd. Right. And I think there was an expectation, maybe not from my parents, but maybe a little bit of a push to maybe do something slightly nerdier and creative. I don't know, industrial design or architecture or what have you. They've been they've been actually, I have to say, very, very supportive. But it was it was a bit like I'm just gonna do fine art and I'm not gonna do anything nerdy at all and I'm just gonna explore. And I was really inspired when I was in year eleven. So when's that? When I was seventeen. Um I was driving into the city in Sydney and I saw this billboard this billboard was from uh, one of the first, I guess, um, cyber feminist art groups called VNS Matrix. And it just said the clitoris is a direct line to the matrix, VNS Matrix. And it had this whole manifesto, which you must go and search for online because it's brilliant. Um, and I went, that's, that's the kind of thing I want to be doing. Yeah. So, you know, went to art school, was very involved in politics, was very involved in sort of feminism and got very involved in cyber feminism, which is this, you know, movement around women and women's body and connectivity in the digital age. And it was just before the internet had started to uh, become, um, I guess, a public facing thing a consumer before it had grown thing. the legs that it has now yeah when you were still you it was still mosaic and it was very much 
or you're connecting to people one-on-one or what have you and everything's text-based and it's, you know, something used for research maybe at, at, at university, but got very heavily into that, had some amazing lecturers who saw that um, I had a real interest and aptitude for some of the more geeky stuff yeah. and so it gave me more. Um, what kind of stuff are we talk in the more geeky stuff? So, you know, whether it was that that sort of beginnings of the pre-commercial internet or whether it was, you know, programming in director or the the precursors to Flash, yeah. like Future Splash or um, Hypercard before HTML started. So, you know, interesting ways of telling stories through code. So I was exploring all of those things. And then the internet hit when I was in... So it's 1994, this is how old I am. 1994, so that was in my second year of university, third year of university. Um, and I just went, this is brilliant because I can take everything about what I'm passionate about in terms of sort of politics and making the world a better place and using creativity and combine it with something that has the potential to connect millions of people all over the world, even though it was probably, you know, however many thousand at the beginning, um, and that's what I want to focus on in t- terms of telling my story mm-hmm. or telling my stories. So I sort of pivoted and started doing stuff in that space. At the same time, there was this amazing woman called Rosie Cross who will be forever. Um, she's still a, a lovely friend and mentor and one of the best humans on the planet. Um, and she had started something called Geek Girl, and that was the world's first Cyber Feminist Hyperzines, that is a magazine and a website. And because there weren't very many websites as well, it was incredibly popular. I think it was like one of the top 20 sites in the, like Microsoft used to do a list of like the coolest sites in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, was that like cool brands for websites, like a coffee table? Yeah, bit? I mean, there were hardly even any brands on there. It was all weird shit back yeah. then. Um, and uh, so she, well... So she had this magazine, and I think in in maybe issue two or three, I came across her. This is a long-winded story, but it is a long-winded story. Um, I came across her because I used to sell my clothes, or sell clothes secondhand at a market to make money for university, alongside doing a bunch of other things to make money. Um, and she had a little stall there, and she had her magazines, and I'd gone to her launch, and I thought she was amazing. She had a magazine. She had these little stickers that said... Um, put down your pony and pick up a computer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and girls need modems and I just thought she was the best and I've got a tattoo uh, of an Escher it's like an infinite tessellation of like spiders and scorpions I guess on my stomach she saw it and she went that's a web it's a world wide web I'd love to take a photograph of it for my magazine and I went yes and then she called me and said we're not going to be able to take the photo the photographer's dropped out and I went, I've done photography at uni. I can take a photo of my stomach, which I did, actually just using photo booth. And then she said, uh, we're not going to be able to do our issue this month because I think the person who was designing it had, again, like dropped out. And it was all, you know, she had this small group of people who were sort of volunteering and she was she's an amazing journalist and she was collecting, um, you know, all the interviews and, and you know, sort of putting the thing together as the, the sort of editor-in-chief but she didn't have anyone to kind of build that framework. And I went, well, I've done a bit of that at university. I can do that. And she just said, anything that you learn how to do, I'll give you a space for it on Geek Girl. So that's when I really started getting heavily into web design, into animation for the web, into storytelling for the web. Um, So all of that was happening. 
and that my artwork was kind of moving in that direction and I was doing lots of installation art like digital installation art as well and then I realized in the the spirit of entrepreneurship and trying to find ways to support myself through university Mm -hmm. that I could use a lot of my skills that I was using for my art and make money from it because no one else knew how to cut and code and it was all done by hand and it was before there was any like WYSIWYG software or anything so it was all done in notepad and you'd have to you know basically write it and then bring it into Netscape at the time and yeah. see what it looked like and take it back. So you, um, so, 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 writing code was a much more long-winded process. You'd have to write it in a text editor, yeah. shove it into the thing that ran the program yeah. and then try and figure out retrospectively what went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also because the internet is, I mean, it's still open and free, but was it's incredibly easy to get people's source code so you could go and see something you liked on the web and then have a look at the source code and figure out how they did it and then take that bit of code and put it in your code and see what works and what didn't work. And mm-hmm. so all that experimentation was was great, but it became really good and fast at cutting and coding and building websites. So I went, okay, this is a business. So I started my own business called Joystick Digital Media, which at the time was kind of almost like a piss take of all the gamer boys and their joysticks. Um and then, and worked with my brother a lot, who's an amazing coder as well. Um, and I would go into agencies and they would usually give me Photoshop files or InDesign files or something and go, okay, we've designed this thing, but how do we get it on there pointing to the computer? Yeah. And so, again, I'd like cut and code it. I'd resize everything. If they needed a database, I'd do them a database. If they, you know, whatever they needed, sort of build them their thing. Um and charge them a decent amount of money for it and basically sleep on their floor for 72 hours. And then that would pay for me for like a couple of weeks of not having to do anything else apart from university. So that's kind of how I got started and how I was introduced to agency world. And then I was also, um, by this stage, I'd moved from my bachelor degree into doing like a a practical master's. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, a master of art in fine art. And, um, oh, yeah, and, and I guess at, at that point, the the studying and, and what I was supposed to be doing at university was getting much more heavy. And so I was much, you know, I was kind of based a lot more around the university. So they didn't have a digital media degree. They'd asked me to kind of write a digital media degree, which I did and started to teach the first years. So I was kind of working, doing stuff and doing university and then teaching one day a week. And um, the university asked this person to come and speak uh, at, or the, the college asked this person to come and speak at the college. Uh, a guy called Simon Waterfall, who is another, he was another DNAD president, but a total inspiration and mentor, and has helped me a lot through my career. And so I went as the lecturer, I guess, and watched him talk. He turned up, I, he might have been in a wedding dress or something, and he had a blue mohawk and. That he, he, the work that he was doing at his agency called Deepin was the, the most incredible digital work at the time. It just blew everything else away. They were based here in London, but they were opening an office in Sydney. And I just said, you know, I really want to come and work for you as a designer. But I had no qualifications as a designer. And, you know, their agency hired only the very, very best designers in the world. So it's like, well, you can't have a job as a designer. But next time I'm here in Sydney bring me your portfolio again and I'll go through it again and tell you what I think you need to know and really helped to guide me. And that must have been for 
feels like it must have been for about 12 months, but I can't really remember. Finally, he said, look, I've got a job at the Sydney Deep End. It's not as a designer because he's still not good enough to be a designer, (laughs) but it's as a producer. Do you want to take it? And I thought I absolutely would like to take it. So that was my first full-time agency job. And I was there for quite a while, learning from the best designers in the world who are all around me. And then I was keen to move over to London. And um, he said, look, we've got a design job in London. And if you want to move over, it's the most junior designer. You'll be on 12 grand a year. But if you want to drop everything and come over, come over. So I went, okay. (laughs) And I think within six weeks, I'd packed up my life in Sydney and moved over here. And suddenly I was working in an atmosphere with like literally the best designers in the world. And actually, you know, some of the people I I used to share a desk with Lolly, who's at McCann now, um, with Rob as their, you know, their two CCOs. And so, you know, sitting next to Lolly, watching how he worked and, and it was a phenomenal experience. Um, And that's really how I both got settled in London and kind of kicked off my career here. I, I mean, digital... That whole digital space then was so exciting because it was, you were being like pirates. You know, you were creating stuff that didn't exist yet. You were, you know, talk about leaning into stuff that's uncomfortable. Yep. You're always going, this has never been done. Don't know whether it can be done. Yeah. Let's see if it can be done. And I think that spirit was really exciting. Um, from there, I went to an agency called Lateral, which was fascinating and I learned so much from because it was run more as a, almost like an anarchist collective than an agency and it was only ever 30 people and they were really specific about the briefs and the clients that they took on and every single person within the agency had a say in what clients came into the business. Um, So I found that really fascinating and kind of, you know, did that for a while and then went and got my first uh, head of design job, which led me back to a lot of people that I used to work with at Deep End who had part of Deep End at that time was an agency called Glue, which was the digital advertising part of the bigger business. And they were still going and I went back there as their head of art. And so I was looking after, um, you know, all the designers and makers and a little bit of tech and there wasn't really user experience back then, but all that is the making bit of yeah. the agency. So I was looking after all of that. Um was there for for quite a long time. I think Glue has become Isabara and now Isabara is very recently no longer. Um, it's one of the things you have to do in Adeline, don't you? There's always a family tree. It's like exactly. they became that who became that who were absorbed by yeah, them. Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. And then um, I had my son. Um, so I went off for nine months, came back. Number one, realised that my, my two kind of design directors that were kind of working with me for me because I never like saying for me. It's not I'm very, I don't like hierarchy in businesses at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing an amazing job without me. And also I realised that I was much more ambitious than maybe the job I was coming back to. And I didn't want to come back necessarily four days a week and I didn't want to be limited by being a mum. Glue were an amazing place to work, but myself and the MD were the first two people ever to have babies, ever, in the agency. Uh, we both went off on maternity leave in the same week. And I came back and I just felt like I needed to take a step. I also didn't have the time anymore with a small baby to keep relearning pr- 
programming languages. Yeah. Like Flash had changed while I was gone. Cascading style sheets had appeared in the nine months I was gone. And I'm like, shit, I've got to, you know. So so everything had changed and become more complex. And that is just the way of technology. So I thought what I need to really be doing is I need to be doing the creative bit, the bit that doesn't change because I understand how everything is made. So I should be able to do a really good job at, at kind of leading those projects, but not necessarily making them as much. So um, I had an opportunity to go to LBI again, that story, LBI became Digitas LBI has now become part of publicists and what have you. Um, and I went in there as a group creative director, very much in a way outside of my comfort zone and then realised it was doing okay and then got promoted to to joint ECD there within the first like eight months or something mm-hmm. like that with Simon Gill. Um, was there for quite a long time building that business. Um, then just wanted to, because that business does, you know, it does the creative stuff, which is what I was brought in to do, but it also does, which I find really interesting, the like big platform stuff and, you know, it was like the future of banking apps and it was the future of travel booking and all sorts of different things. But what year are we talking here, did you say? This was maybe 20... I guess I went there in... must have gone there in 2008 or nine. So we really are before the big bang of those kind of products you were describing where everything was going to be in an app within six years and we didn't yet know it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, and it was still a really new space in terms of social media too. So there were all sorts of interesting things to explore. Facebook still had an open API, so you could suck it into other sites. And um, and then I just wanted to get back to kind of the pure creativity again. Went to DEF 12 months, met my two business partners who I formed Mr. President with, popped outside to run my own agency for eight years and then... And then I've come here. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Long convoluted story. Uh, but always, like I said, with those two things in mind, um, that creativity has got the power to change the world, change culture, and that we've got a responsibility to do that. And by leaning into the things that make you feel uncomfortable, it's yeah. a really interesting way to keep learning. Well, it's interesting that you, you opened up with those two, let's say, core beliefs that drive everything you do and they kept coming back in the story so one thing we kept hearing is um, if you're going to progress to a leadership position Mm -hmm. let's say like the one you have you have to exist on the edge because that's where all the new stuff is all the stuff that's in here is already understood but you were in 1994 interfacing with uh, code which now is kind of learn to code became a cliche didn't it it became the new learn to type but uh, you were doing that uh, before Toy Story came out even, which yeah. is, you know, so before computers were even a mainstream idea that people should have them. Yeah. So, 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 you're in, so you're in a position where, you, you know, you're at the edge learning new stuff, which means that if you can master it, you can teach that to the people who need to know it. Yeah. And this happened, so this, you came into agency life and you said they were using Photoshop, but didn't yet know how to actually get it into maybe, say, a website or something yeah. like that. So they're actually pulling you out of the ether saying this this person needs to show us how to actually use the stuff that we now have. Yeah, absolutely. So do you see anything happening for people right now that you say get into that because then you will be a future leader? Oh, my goodness. Look, I think in terms of uh, like the output that we create, the media that we use, there are loads of different things, I think. Um, and they're not necessarily all new things, but I think they're unexplored things. I mm-hmm. think... Um, 
there's really interesting places in terms of programmatic work where I don't think the creative potential of that, even though it's been around in different forms for a long time, is, you know, it's never really been leveraged, I think, in a properly creative way. Um, it tends to get very practical very, very quickly. When we're talking programmatic for like idiots like me, what what are you describing? So it is the it's the the part I guess of the it's one of the main parts I guess of what digital advertising is all about now. So it is about creating like contextual work um, could be AI driven work, but like for specific people for specific times, often in I don't want to get into how these ads are like run or bidded bid for or what have you but it's the the kind of the engine of the what you see is the practical internet mm-hmm. um so it represents itself in everything from um you know a classic banner ad to you know that i mean it it's it's kind of the, the all pervasive I don't want to say business as usual bit of the internet because I think that's how it's been treated, but I think it can be so much more. I think just taking something like contextual advertising, for example, I don't think the possibilities of that have been explored in any way. I think there's, you know, other places like um, everyone's talking about the metaverse, but really like there is no the metaverse. There are many different metaverses. A lot of them are actually games. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think about them in, in that way what is actually appropriate and not appropriate for brands to be doing and are we in there playing with it or are we in there setting up a version of... I don't know whether anyone remembers Second Second Life. Second Life, yes, of course. (laughs) But another version of Second Life where you're building stuff that no one comes to and it's, you know, full of all the problems that Second Life had as well. Yeah, which if you want to go on Wikipedia and search Second Life, you'll find what uh, Laura's referring to. Yeah, man. It was (laughs) was a dark and dangerous place for a woman, that place, I have to say. Um, So... Uh, you know, I think it's interesting conceptually to think about that. I think AI is phenomenally interesting and exciting. And then thinking about what that means in terms of ethical AI and how you could be working with your clients to remove biases rather than build on the biases that just naturally exist in spaces and data sets and what have you. I think that's really fascinating. I mean, there's so many fascinating things. There's still like so much more to be done just in terms of like a simple poster. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But I think the the main thing is the curiosity, like what is out there, what's in my toolbox, what can I be using? And what I've seen is every agency that's pinned themselves to an output has died and agencies that have constantly been curious and explored are the ones that have survived. And that's why like coming here is really interesting. It's our 105th year this year yeah. um, because the only way... We've made it to 105 years old, and I think that makes us the oldest continuous ad agency yeah, in the world. Yeah, because JWT has been... Exactly, everyone else has been merged. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of that, being at the helm of this agency that feels, like, super traditional, but actually the only way it has stayed around is because it adapts to things, you know, really, really well. I can kind of think of an example of what you're describing there, and... Uh, maybe this is a, an example of the, the forward-thinking attitude that you bring to the agency, but yeah. m- you know, maybe it was, um, uh, maybe it was a you know an idea that came together uh, some other way. But I'm thinking about the the work that you've been doing with Pringles, and a lot of it has not been traditional Pringles, which is yeah. to say, print TV ad. You've been doing stuff with NPCs, 
um, which I believe is non-playable characters it in is. video games. <laughs> and um, I think I saw something else that you'll have to explain to me as well, which was also like a tone. Yes. Yeah? So, yeah, I'm, very, I'm super proud of that one. I will say, actually, um, in terms of Pringles, we have a really great model with them, which we call the, the 70-20-10 model, because, you know, they will always need the, the core of what they do to be the stuff that, you know, like the, the more traditional stuff. They need their TV ads and they need their cut downs and they need, because when you're working with complex global brands and you have local markets who are in different kind of stages of development or they might use different social platforms or what have you, it's really important to have those core universal assets. So mm -hmm. that stuff is always a part of whatever we do. You've got kind of the the 10%, which is the stuff that's like way out, the future stuff, and you've got 20%, which is that sort of amplification of um, of that core. Uh so we we do do a bit of everything. So the the Pringle Sonic work is actually was a it was a a ten percent idea. Yeah. Um, and for Pringles, gaming is one of the sort of the big pillars of of their brand. Yeah. You know, as it is with a lot of snack brands, and because a lot of snack brands are in that space, it's also incredibly competitive. That audience are really hard to talk to as well because you have to be you know use the word authenticity, but you have to be really authentic and you have to know your shit to be in that space. Yeah, because they see, they can see outsiders a mile away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to to more or less degree, ev everyone, because you've got access to the internet, can kind of sniff things out. But the, that gaming audience is particularly cynical, I would mm -hmm. say. So uh, this particular piece was for the 40th anniversary of uh, the ZX Spectrum. Um, it ties into a bigger campaign where we're actually talking about the history of Pringles, which was invented on a supercomputer, and it's talking about taking the past into the present. We thought there'd be an interesting thing in taking the present into the past. Um, and uh, you don't get an opportunity like celebrating the birth of modern gaming yep. as, as this birthday. So, And what was that system just for... for uh, so it's called the ZX Spectrum. Um, and for any of you who didn't have a ZX Spectrum or weren't around when all computers used to do this, the way that computers would take code and understand code was through binary code transformed into audio, which you put in a cassette and you played it into your computer and it would take forever to load and then that's how you would get your game or your, your whatever. Um, so when I was a kid, you know, uh, the computers at school, they all had cassettes and you had to pop the cassette into do anything. Is that also why that, you know, you can, I don't know, you have uh, automated phone systems that say press two and it makes a tone. Is that how it interprets the tone or is that different? Quite possibly, actually. I don't know about automated, I expect not so anymore, but they did. But it's how, you know, it's the same, like you have the modem sound that you used to... All that stuff that went... <laughs> yeah. Like that, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that, that kind of a sound um, is the sound. Um and uh, it's also really interesting because in a lot of places, particularly in Eastern Europe, where you couldn't get access to the to the games, radio stations would play the sounds on the radio station, like, say, midnight on a Saturday night. And if you were a kid, you would sit there with your tape deck and you would record 
sound off the radio and that's how you would get your games. That is amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So literally a bunch of tones translated into code that would run a, a program. Absolutely. So, so for the birthday, we created a, a, a game, a competition for the ZX Spectrum. We launched it with a video on YouTube just talking about the, you know, the birth of modern gaming and and celebrating the 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 ZX Spectrum. Uh, but if you recorded it off YouTube, put it onto a cassette tape or into a ZX Spectrum emulator and or plugged it into your actual machine, um, you could play this little game and you could win a 8-bit uh, chip, um, which was a, you know, a special limited edition thing for the first person to get to it. Um, and you would think something that geeky would take a really, really yeah. long time to... Be decoded, but actually it was quite quick. I think it was within an hour or two. Someone no way. Actually... I thought you were going to say in a week. No, it was amazing. Um, and the lovely thing about it is although you're speaking to a small audience of like OG gamers, there is a big audience of gamers who overheard it, who yeah. actually, you know, got to see the campaign in other ways or watch the video or hear about it on Twitch or what have you. So, yeah, that was that was super fun. <laughs> and you're able to stay ahead of the curve in this way because you were there at the beginning, for example. And it's been a, it's been a keen interest for you the whole way through. Yeah. You know, because um, uh, it seems like you occupy a really interesting Venn diagram of you know aesthetic, creative interest, yeah. and basically engineering and code and the hard stuff. Yeah, I mean that's it's my it's my personal passion, uh, but you know obviously it's also not just me. The, the Pringles team here and the the team that work on the gaming stuff are phenomenal. Yeah. Right, they're absolutely phenomenal. The game was actually produced in house by, our, you know, Creative Tech. The design was done using the original kind of design specs for the ZX Spectrum by one of our designers. There was a real labour of love from a lot of people that have that passion. And one of the lovely things about working here is you have so many people with so many different intersecting passions. Yeah. Um, they get you to all sorts of interesting ideas. And this is where you're like, uh, I mean, everyone was saying this. I feel like we're kind of past the typical pandemic conversation points. Two years ago when I was mm -hmm. doing this, we'd all talk about it's better when everyone's in the office and yeah. the big debate was going on. But it sounds like you're a, a champion of that idea. So that it's good to have everyone around, like sort of atoms crashing into each other because you just don't know what's going to happen with each yeah. impact. Yeah, and I mean, it's this is a, like maybe a less interesting functional thing, but one of the things that we do... Here, it, I mean, we are fully flexible, but we have what we call one fix, one flex. So for the most part, um, you come in on your fixed day, which is a day that we assign for departments. So anyone involved in making stuff, strategists, creatives, designers, tech, whoever it is, you know, editors, they all come in on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to kind of smash stuff together. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and different departments will come in different days, and then we ask someone, we ask people to come in a second flex day. Some people don't come in at all. Some people come in five days a week, but for the most part, because we've got a really lovely culture here of sharing and experimentation and openness, um, you know, people are coming into the office um, a lot, which is really nice. Obviously, not today with the train strike, but usually, um, and we have a, um, I guess, a real belief here at Grey in what we call the, the collision of difference. So, you know, Grey has always stood for famously effective work. You create that famously effective work through, like, really kind of shifts in culture and making stuff that is properly culturally impactful. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, 
I think for us, and particularly us in London, where we are in this amazing city, uh, is what we call a collision of difference. And it's a really simple belief that the more diverse the input, the more interesting the output. Mm-hmm. So the more you can come together, the more you can smash things together, the more you lean into, you know, employing and creating a sense of belonging across the whole spectrum of, you know, people yeah. who might want to work here the better the work is going to be. Yeah, and to go to your initial point of saying lean into things that make you uncomfortable, uh, which I believe is essential. I think it's the only place that you uh, actually grow because it's where all the stuff you don't know is. You mentioned diversity there and we're talking Mm -hmm. about making sure that we're constantly trying to pull people into the workforce Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't think to pull in because things have a tendency to drive towards orthodoxy. This is working. Do more of this. So uh, you're always looking out for trying not to do that and saying, right, that's working, cool. What have we not even tried yet that might work? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's something that, I mean, it's something that I've always believed in, but I, I ran something with a group of people uh, called the Great British Diversity Experiment. I want to say maybe in 2016. It feels like a long time ago. Yes, it does. Um, and that was the largest practical experiment looking at diverse creativity. So uh, whether diverse creative teams actually make better work than non-diverse teams, if so, what are the barriers in the way? To, because we know that the industry really isn't diverse. So what are those barriers that are getting in the way to stop us building those teams including those teams, how might we change ourselves to create a more diverse agency and to check all those hypotheses. So it was a proper piece of research, 250 people all working on a brief for Tesco uh, with a research agency, Flamingo, who came in and actually did the serious research bit um, over 13 weeks. Um, And we got a lot of really interesting learnings from it. But one of the most interesting learnings, so there were 40 mentors um, working across 20 teams all working on this brief. And if you think that each of these mentors is given hours and hours of their time every single week for 13 weeks, they're all 100% passionate about um, diverse teams and having them flourish. But what we found is the traditional way of running a creative team, which is much more about hierarchy, much more about leading from the top down, squashed the benefits of those diverse teams because you end up forcing people into a cultural consensus even if they don't naturally fit there. I think we're used to having to go faster, get to ideas faster, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves them. That's easy when you've got cultural consensus because everyone comes from the same place. It's much harder when you don't have that to begin with. And because then there was this pressure to conform those teams fell apart. So a lot of the teams that just, you know, didn't perform or underperformed and you see that, you know, in agencies and then it's like, well, it doesn't work for us. Diversity doesn't work for us or they're just not as good as the whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Was just this like pressure to conform and this pressure feeling like you have the weight of whoever you might represent on your shoulders as well. Stop them from doing their job. The teams that, had the best ideas, who worked best as a team, where the, everything was flowing and that energy was there, were led by what we call um, what we called kind of clear enablers. So those are people who are able to kind of sit back, allow the group to coalesce, which is messy because creativity is messy, and to, but help to show them a clear path forwards into whatever that idea is. 
And that is not what we've always been told is a good creative leader, you know, traditionally. And, and running She Says, which I do, which is, you know, the largest global network to advance women's careers in the creative industries. I mentor a lot of women particularly, and it's not just a female thing, but it is for a, a lot of women. They're told that they're not ECD material or they're not chief creative officer material because they're not strong enough and they don't stamp their authority. Mm-hmm. What really clearly came from this is stamping your authority and being that traditionally good creative leader leads to you either have to have a team that's all like you or or it all kind of falls yeah, apart. Yeah. So I think if we're going to grow diversity and grow different thinking in the industry, we have to start, which hopefully we are, because you're seeing a lot more in terms of more interesting leaders. You've got to shift to a different kind of leadership to mm-hmm. get a different kind of result. Well, let's uh, hope that's what's happening here at Grey. Um, I can't tell I had to glance at my watch because like an idiot I said I'm going to leave a full screen clock over there in front of an OG computer user who knows like everything about it and forgot to set it to not turn off so we've got about five minutes left oh gee wow I know okay. it goes doesn't it yeah. so in terms of wrapping up yes. uh, there's a uh, too much to there's so much to talk about that I could probably go for another two hours um, but uh, one thing I wanted to pick up on was for people who are going to be entering this stage because mm-hmm. you mentioned the rate of transformation in I think everything is what you were yeah. describing in everything yep. and if you have to take any time off at all and some you know people are having more and more ambitions to do that mm-hmm. you can't see on camera Vicky here who works with <laughs> us at gas you know um has you know would like to maybe take a few months or you know something off to go and uh travel with your other half and that's a great thing to do and the I would like to at some point have kids yeah. and you know I'd like to take a lot of time off just to be with them yeah. what happens when you come back and everything's changed um i How think the stay? i think the most important thing is to not be too embarrassed to ask questions um, and to say this thing has changed. What do I? What do I do? Or how, how do I approach it? Yeah. Like a ridiculous example, but it was really impactful for me. Is um, banner ads changed their name from banner ads to display advertising in the nine months I was on maternity leave? And I literally came back to the office. Everyone's talking about display advertising. I'm the head of art. I'm like, what the fuck is display yeah. advertising? And I'm too embarrassed to ask. I was there on the internet trying to find out, like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and are you worried that you expose a bit of vulnerability and everyone goes, they're not in charge anymore, yeah, exactly. it's my turn. And then you realise you've <laughs> just got to be vulnerable. You have to work as a team. The stuff that you don't know, someone else knows. I had a creative director I worked with called Abby Ellis, who's just a superstar. She said the best thing to me, like the best piece of advice ever, and I would give it to anyone, is focus on the things that you're brilliant at and make them shine like the sun so much that they shine out everything else Mm -hmm. because the thing that is not your sun is someone else's sun. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, teamwork, focusing on the things you love and you're good at, bringing the new experiences you have back into that story because it'll make you a different person and give you a different point of view. That You know, that's the most important thing. Great. So I suppose let's try and do a quick wrap up, you know, how to be a Laura Jordan band. (laughs) One thing, exist on on the edge, be where the new stuff is and don't be scared of it. Try and go to where you're scared. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where you're going to learn stuff. Uh, when you meet great people, like I'm really sorry, I forgot who it was who liked your tattoo so much. The world. Oh, World's Rosie Cross. Yeah, when you meet someone who gives you an opportunity, just say yes. Yeah. Go for it. Uh-huh. And then when you're that person, pay it forward. 100% pay it forward. Uh, that's the most important thing, I think. I couldn't have done it without 
you know, Rosie and Simon and a couple of other people in my career who've just really seen something in me that I didn't see in myself or see my potential. So look for people's potential and help to grow it. Brilliant. Well, let's leave it there. Laura Jordan-Bambach, thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers.